Okay, thank you, Noah. Uh, okay, so we're up to chapter 19. Chapter 19 is the story of, of Lot and the story of Sodom. It has a particular relevance to this time of year because it's deeply related to the story of the Exodus, Yitziat Mitzrayim, as we will touch upon for sure. But it's sort of part of the larger Avram narrative. And the stories of Avram in general, the narrative has doubled stories. So we encountered Lot back in chapter 12 and chapter 13. Chapter 12 is where he leaves together with Avram, beginning of chapter 12. Chapter 13 is where Avram and Lot separate. Avram says we should separate. There's been a quarrel between the shepherds. You go to the north, I'll go to the south. You go to the south, I'll go to the north. In the language of the Torah, Yaminus Small, which is north and south. But Lot doesn't go north or south. He picks up his eyes in chapter 13. He sees the plain of the Jordan, which is very fertile. And he travels east. Mikedem does not mean from the east in that context. It means to the east. He travels eastward. And in general, in Sefer Breshi, when you go east, you go out. Out of, the, out of the sacred place, starting with the story of the Garden of Eden, east of Eden. So that's where we find Lot. And actually now, earlier Abram had prayed for Sodom. We know that Lot uh, has chosen by, by Yehal Ad Sodom in chapter 13. He pitched his tent up to Sodom. Abram in the previous chapter, we saw this last week, prays for Sodom. Maybe they're 50 righteous, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. Maybe we'll come back to his prayer today, maybe not. But in any event, now we get to chapter 19. This is the second iteration of the, uh, the second piece of the, of, the, of the Lot story and Lot's place in the Abraham narrative and beyond. So let's begin right away with chapter 19. There's a lot to talk about in chapter 19. It says, so these two messengers of God, two of them, what happened to the third? There were three who visited Abraham, and now they're two. So let's leave that question aside for now. That's a very interesting question, not for right now. In any event, two of these messengers, we might call them angels, arrive uh, into Sodom, Sodoma, to Sodom, and they come at night. And we find Lot, the uh, main player in chapter 19, Yosheg Bashar Sodom. He's sitting in the gate of Sodom. Now, often when you sit in the gate, a gate is a public space. A gate is sometimes a, a um, not just public space, but perhaps it's also seen as a, as a central public space. Um, we have it, for example, in the, the uh, poem, Eshet Chayu, Noda Basharim Bala, the Shifto and Zikne Aretz. So he's, uh, her husband is known in the Shar, sits with the elders in the Shar. And we also have this in the fourth chapter of the Book of Ruth, Uboaz Allah Hashar Vayeshev Sham. Boaz went to the gate, sat down, and he went to the elders, he told them to sit down. You sit down, and they're going to have a, a, a case. The case will, will be about Ruth, Ruth's lands the marriage of Ruth, etc. So it's a public public hearing, and it takes place by Shah. So Lot, we find not just in Sodom, 
but he's Bashar Saddam. Some of the Medrash claims maybe he's actually was appointed as a judge, this and that, but in any event, he's in the public space and he's in Saddam, which is important. Lot sees them. He rushes to greet them. So he bows down to these two people. So he says to them, turn aside, turn aside to the house of your servant. He calls himself this servant. And you uh, rest, rest here, wash your feet, and in the morning you will depart. But they say, no, we'd rather stay, we'd rather sleep or a chov. A rechov is a public place, uh, a street. The word rechov is related to the word rachav, which is broad, Broadway. Broadway, exactly the point. Broadway is rechov. So they, they prefer not to enter his house. They prefer to stay in the street. The Torah doesn't tell us why they prefer to stay in the street. The Medrash and Rashi follows that. Rashi's pretty down on load altogether. And if they, with Abraham, they gladly accepted his hospita- offer of hospitality, but with Lot, they initially refused. Of course, there could be other reasons why they refused. And I can think of two reasons why they might refuse. Number one, here they're being sent to judge the town. So perhaps the thinking is the best place to judge the town would be in the, to, to remain only in the public space, not to go to any particular person's house. That's one possibility. Another possibility could be that knowing Saddam and they know something about Saddam, we know they're bad. We don't necessarily know how bad, but they clearly know good. As the Torah said earlier, and as the previous chapter, God says to Abraham, the sin is grievous. How grievous? I don't know. We'll check it out. So perhaps um, going into Lot's house, perhaps they, they think or know that might put him in danger. And given the fact that hospitality is a barometer of how good a person is, as we saw in the previous chapter. So perhaps that's the reason that they initially refused. <clears throat> Be that as it may, what we notice is that Lot does offer hospitality and no one else is offering hospitality in the narrative. He's the one who rushes out there. It's very Abraham-like. There may be distinctions between the way Lot speaks to them, what Lot offers. Abraham offers them a sumptuous meal. And Lot, in the next verse, in Pasuk Gimel, by Yitzhar Bamaot, he insists. He's very persuasive or very insisting. And uh, he urges them to come very strongly. By Yaslehem Mishteh, he makes a feast for them, a Mishteh. Mishteh usually is a meal where you drink. And we know that, for example, drinking at a meal um, typically signifies that the meal is a special meal. The best example would be Kiddush, actually. The Shabbat meal begins with drink, with Kiddush. And we know that in general, when you go to an important event, uh, often there are drinks before the meal. There's something before the meal. So give a mishteh, and he bakes matzah for them. 
and they ate. So here we have a contrast between the matzah of Lot in verse number three and the pat lechem that Avram offers together with the ben habakar and together with the ushi um, vasi ugot, the cakes that are baked by Sarah. So there is a difference between the two. On the other hand, to talk in, in terms of Lot's favor, in the case of Abraham, you have willing guests passing by. In the case of Lot, he has to insist. They initially refuse. And by Yitzhar Bama'ot, he said, very insistent, please come to my house. In any event, they come into the house. He makes a meal for them, a mishteh. Not just a meal, but a mishteh. Umatzot And Rashi has this well-known comment on umatzot He baked matzah, and they ate it. Says Rashi, Pesachaya. It was Pesach. And that's a very interesting comment. On its face, it makes zero sense. What in the world could it mean it was Pesach? There was no Pesach, as you see at Mitzrayim. So we'll have to bear that in mind. But the first point is, as far as Lot is concerned, the Torah presents Lot in these three verses, one might say as being a true son, relative of, of Abraham in the sense that he is a he is one who engages in 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 in, in hospitality, even though he's in the city of Sodom, they have a terrible reputation, but that's Lot. Okay, so it's very positive so far. Perim Yishkabu, before they had not yet gone to sleep, laid down. So we are told that the entire town, people of Sodom, surrounded the house. Nosabu Arabayit. Nosabu has a pejorative sense over here. They surrounded the house from young to old. All the people. All the people. Down to the last person. Gather around the house. Remember that Avram had prayed for Sodom and Avram had said, listen, you can't destroy the whole city. Maybe there are 50 righteous people. Maybe they're 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. And over here we're told that the people of the town, all of them, young to old, so the call on Mikotse is intended to be a response, one might say, to Avram's prayers. Made there X number of righteous people. But the whole town is surrounding the house. They cried out to Lot. Where are those people who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us. Here they translate in the JPS. We will be intimate with them. We have you have the same translation, JPS. Intimate is not the word I would use over here. That's about intimacy. So in Otam. It probably does have a sexual meaning, but you have elsewhere in the Tanakh, by Yoda Otam, you have it with Gidon, when he comes back and attacks the people of Sukkot and Pnea who didn't support him. So it involves harming. Bring them out to us that we may, it may be sexually, you know, kind of rape, but it's, Veneda Otam is certainly a negative word. And actually here, it is clear that the Chumash well, it always chooses its words very carefully. But remember what God had said to Abraham. I'm hearing the cries of Sodom and Amora. Sakat Sodom v'amoraki rabba, chatatam kabdama od. Er Let me go down and see. Is, it, is what I'm hearing accurate? 
If so, Kala will utterly destroy them. Vimlo, but if not, Eda, I will know. That is to say, I will know what to do. So here the Chumash once again plays with Avram's prayer and God's response. The Tom is a, clearly a negative, to put it mildly, and it's the whole town. So we already have our response to Abraham. They're on 50, they're on 45, 43, 20, 10. Maybe there's one, and I say maybe. In any event, now we have Lot's response. So Lot goes out to them by the entrance to the house, by the petach, by the door. He shuts the door behind him. You know, he wants to make sure they don't get into the house. He doesn't want them rushing into the house. He shuts the door. The door is locked, presumably. He walks out in front of the door. And he says, He says to them, My, my brethren, my, literally my brothers. Can they translate my friends? That's stronger than that. Brothers. Al-Tareyu, do not do evil. Don't do evil. Don't do something bad. Behold, I have two daughters, Ish, who have not known the man. I'll, I'll send them out to you. Do whatever you want to them. But to these people, don't do anything. Since they have come, under the shelter of my roof. So, you know, if we ask ourselves the question, what is wrong with this picture? Uh, I don't think it's a hard uh, question to, uh, to answer, but I would say that after all, I would say the daughters are under, also under the shelter of his roof, certainly. And the idea of offering his daughters to the, to the crowd of Sodom, do whatever you want to them, clearly is perverse. There's actually something else here that's important about what he says and very instructive. And that is, on one hand, his point is that the people who have come into my house, if you enter into my house, it's with the assumption I'm going to protect you. The house provides a kind of sanctuary. You can't touch these people. If I brought them into my home with the, with the implicit idea that I'm going to care for you. Now, of course, supposed to care for his daughters as well. But that's a separate story. But the point over here, in addition, is that if Lord wants to be a hero and wants to protect the two guests in his home, so what he could have said was, you know, okay, take me. Don't take them, take me. Or he could have tried to resist. But he doesn't say take me. He says, take my daughters. So what we have over here is, apart from everything else, which is highly problematic, we have somebody who doesn't know what it means to take responsibility. To take responsibility does not mean take my children. Taking responsibility means taking myself. And actually we have a precise parallel in the book of Reshit to Lot's response to the crowd. We have exactly the same story later on in this book. Yes, exactly. The story of Reuven later on, when they come back from Mitzrayim, minus one son, minus Shimon. And Yaakov is very upset with Shimon. They come back with a lot of money, too. 
So Ruben says to his father, Father, at the end of chapter 43, I believe it is. Ruben says, listen, father, uh, you can kill my two sons if I don't bring him back. Let's find that pasuk. It's the end of chapter 42, actually. Verse number 37, you can kill my, kill my two sons. And Yaakov doesn't even respond, says, forget about it. After all, why would Yaakov want to kill his two grandchildren? And then Yehuda speaks up in the beginning of the next chapter, I take responsibility. If I don't bring him back, um, I, I can be held guilty or accountable all of my days. So here you have the case of Lot, apart from everything else, you have a failure to accept responsibility. We'll come back to that later on. It's very central to this, to, to Lot in general and to the chapter. But before we get to that, or return to that, there's something else interesting about the story here. Now, first of all, why does Lot offer his two daughters? What is, the, what is the point of that? So my brother once suggested to me, and I liked it, and I'll repeat it in his name, that actually, and I think we can find this in the Mepharshim as well. I came across this, and I don't remember where, within the, the, the Mepharshim, say something similar, which is Lot has taken into his house these two strangers. Apparently the town knows about this. So the, the fear of the town, perhaps, is that in, by Lot bringing two strangers into his house, he's attempting to connect to two people from the outside world, two people not from Sodom, not members of the town. And he, he might even be thinking, maybe he wants to incorporate them into his family. After all, he has two unmarried daughters. So the concern over here is, not just that Lot's being a nice guy, but he might be reaching out to others outside their immediate province. And therefore he offers his daughters, look, he says, I'm not interested in these two fellows, you know? And my daughters are not, I'm not making him part of my family. Take, take my two daughters. You can do whatever you want to them as a demonstration that he has no particular interest beyond just being a nice person with helping these two people from the outside. He has no intent to connect the people from the outside. And here, it's a good se segue into a very important point about the story of Sodom in general and the story of Lot. The story of Lot, if we ask ourselves the question, what is the literary function of Lot within the biblical text? What literary function does Lot play? And there are two answers to that, two good answers to that question. Maybe there are more. I can think of two. The first is Lot serves as an important foil to Abraham. He's similar to Abraham in many respects, and yet there are differences between them. And that's point number one. So he casts an important light on our main character, which is Abraham, of course. But apart from that, there's something else about the story of Lot, which Rashi already hints at in that two words of Rashi in the beginning of the chapter, and that is Pesach Hoya. The story of Lot in Sodom is similar and in many respects precisely parallel to the story of Israel in the land of Egypt. So let me just make a few observations about this parallel. In my Haggadah that I wrote 10 years ago with Rachel First, there's a chapter about this in that Haggadah, about the parallels of Lot and Clearly, I mean, I'm sure since then I've thought about many other things. The problem with writing that you 
it gets written down as if it's final, but we know from our learning together, it's never final. You always go back and re-examine it. But let's just pause for a moment to think about this parallel of Lot and Sodom and Israel and Egypt. And the first point, before we get to Lot, let's talk about Sodom. So we remember from chapter 13, when Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw the plain of the Jordan, back in chapter 13, then the Torah added, this was before God had destroyed Sodom and Amorah. This is chapter 13, verse number, verse number 10. Before God destroyed Sodom and Amorah, Kigan Hashem It was like the garden of God, like the land of Egypt, as one all the way to Tsoa, Boachatsoa. Gan Hashem So the Torah has compared Sodom. Back in chapter 13, let's leave the garden of God out of it for now. But ki Eretz Mitzrayim, Eretz Mitzrayim. And, and uh, so the Torah already drops a, a hint to us. When you think of Sodom, think about Mitzrayim. And we know that when you read last week's chapter, chapter 18, and the Torah said that God says, that the cries of, of the cries, Sakat Sodom Vamoraki Rabba, the cries from Sodom and Amorah are very great, right? Uh, I want let me go down and see, says God. Let me check it out. If it's true, if what I'm hearing is accurate, is an accurate description of what's going on there, then I'll destroy them. If not, I'll know. And that phrase, the cries descending to God, is very reminiscent of a pasuk that we have in the beginning of the book of Exodus, in the second chapter of Sefer Shemot, chapter 2. And there the Torah says, at the end of chapter 2, says that, in chapter 2, verse 23, the king of Egypt died. Then Israel sighed of the labor. There was a respite. So they groaned or sighed from the, from the, from the avodah, from the slavery. And they cried out. And the cries ascended to God from the slavery. And God heard the cries. And God remembered God's covenant. With Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw, and God knew. So here we have exactly in this little section, the end of chapter two of Exodus, a very quite precise parallel to Sodom. The cries are ascending to God. God is hearing, but in this case, God sees, and also God knows all the language of Sodom, right? And the cries ascending to heaven. So there we have a parallel between Sodom and Mitzrayim. But thinking about it more deeply, there are two other parallels that come to mind in terms of describing Sodom. The first one is that Mitzrayim is a place that is that dislikes the stranger. That's how the Chumash describes it. And that's how the Chumash describes in the beginning of the book of Shemot, what Paro says to his people. Says the people are Ravi Yatsumi Menu, the beginning of the book of Exodus. It's a very perfect Shia for Pesach in three weeks. So Ravi, the people are this Ambanes or Ravi Yatsumi Menu. 
we have to outsmart them. Why? Pen your bear, lest they continue to grow, to multiply. If a war will come, they will join up with our enemy. They will rise from the earth. In other words, the concern, what Paro says to his people is that the Israelites in Egypt are a kind of potential fifth column. They'll join up with the enemy and a war breaks out, they'll be on the other side against us. So it's concerned about the stranger as someone who's dangerous. And that clearly is what we have in our chapter on Sodom. If the reading is correct, anybody from the outside is the potential danger. And the case of Lot, uh, if what my brother suggested is correct, and I think it is correct, um, then uh, that's exactly the point. It's not just two people visiting, but he's got, he has two unmarried daughters also. He intends to, to link up with, with, the, with the outsider. I would add to this, by the way, without a discussion for now, that I believe that Yosef himself, the story of Yosef, which is the last quarter or so of this book, that that's one of the issues when the brothers come down to Mitzrayim and Yosef has them stay near him in the land of Goshen, that's when things between Joseph and Pharaoh begin to become very, very strained and difficult and ultimately uh, very, very challenging and lead to slavery. The brothers coming down to Mitzrayim is very problematic, but we'll have to wait for some future day. In any event, that's one parallel between Sodom and Mitzrayim, the way you see the outside as a stranger. So Hachanasat Archim from this respect, from this perspective, is very significant, the way you treat the outside. Do you welcome the outsider in, as Avram did, as Lot did at the beginning, or, or not, is very important. That's, I think, obvious point. And now here's a second point that's less obvious. And that is that in the beginning of the book of Exodus, it says a new Pharaoh emerged. Didn't know Joseph. Of course, all the commentaries ask the question, and all of us ask the question, what does it mean to say he didn't know Joseph? How could any Pharaoh not know Joseph? Joseph was the one responsible, not just for saving Egypt, but for empowering Paro. It's Joseph who figures out a way to give Paro all the money, all the cattle, and all the land. What in the world could it possibly mean that the hero of, of Egypt in the book of Breshit, in the first few verses of the next book, that the new Pharaoh emerged who did not know. Did not know means that doesn't want to know. It's conscious forgetting. And he turns against Joseph's people. In the words of the Torah, in the beginning of Sefer Shemot, they will add themselves onto our enemies. Vinosaf. Vinosaf is a play on Joseph. So that's a, we would say, a lack of gratitude, lack of hakaratatot. Now we have chapter 19. The people of Sodom are about to turn against Lot. They're about to threaten Lot. Who is Lot vis-a-vis -vis the people in Sodom? Lot is dwelling, Lot, Lot is Bashar Sodom in chapter 19, verse number one. But we have to remember something about chapter 19. The story of Lot is the second iteration of the Lot story. The earliest story of Lot about traveling to Sodom in chapter 13, and in chapter 14, there's a war of five kings against four. The five kings include the king of Sodom and Amorah. 
and the entire town of Sodom is captured by the four kings and all the property is taken and all the people are taken. And one person saves the town of Sodom, which is Abraham. And he saves the town of Sodom for one reason and one reason only, because he wants to save Lot. In effect, the very existence of Sodom is due to one person, the person we encounter in chapter 19, verse number one, Lot Yoshev Bashar Sodom. So turning against the Lot of all people is the ultimate ingratitude. This is the man who saved everybody's existence is, was contingent on Lot. And this is the person that the people of the town are about to threaten. So that's another Mitzrayim connection. In short, Sodom equals Mitzrayim for our purposes. It's not the same geographical place. That's irrelevant for us. It is the same conceptual place. Now, in point of fact, and this is a very important point about the Haggadah, which I will simply mention now, and not get into at this point. And that is that the Haggadah, actually, as we have it, um, has a section where we have drashot. We engage in Midrash, and we're, we are Doresh, the Parsha, that appears at the end of the Torah, when you bring your first fruits to the temple. The Torah says, when you bring the first fruits to the temple, you have a recitation. It begins with the words, Arami Ovei And the Mishnah instructs us in the last chapter of Psachim, those doing the Dafyomi, it's right around the corner. And uh, it says, Bedorish Kola Parsha Kula. You read the Parsha of Mikra Bikurim, Bedorish Kola Parsha Kula, and you engage in Medrash on the Parsha. The Mishnah doesn't tell us what kind of Medrash you do. Sounds like everybody does their own Medrash. But the Haggadah, the one who was put up, set up the Haggadah for us, this anonymous person, who, who created probably the most read Jewish book, maybe the Bible first, I'm not sure about that, whether the Bible or, or the Haggadah, in any event, this anonymous author uh, provided us with various thresholds. The first of which begins with the word Seogamad, it's the name of, name of my Haggadah, Seogamad, Go and learn what love on the Aramean attempted to do to Jacob, our father. Pharaoh only decreed against the boys to throw them into the Nile. But love would have uprooted everybody. As it is written, which the Medrash interprets, the Aramean tried to destroy my father. Probably not the most plausible reading of the verse. It probably means my father was a wandering Aramean. But the Medrash reads it, the Aramean tried to destroy my father. That's the first drush that we have that the Haggadah provides us with. And it's a very strange one to put it mildly for Passover night. We're remembering the exodus from Egypt. And the first thing we say is, you think Pharaoh was bad. Laban was much worse. Without getting into all the details of that, but the point of that medrash of the drush, which is the pshat in a certain way, is to make the following observation. That when you study the story of Jacob in the house of Laban, and you study the story of Israel in the land of Egypt, you realize something about the two stories. They're virtually identical. There are some distinctions between them, but it fundamentally is the same story. Jacob descending in chapter 28, Jacob leaving Beersheba and going to Haran 
in chapter 28, and Jacob leaving Beersheba in chapter 46 and going to Egypt, those two stories are parallel stories. In other words, what the Haggadah is saying in effect is that in thinking about Yitziat Mitzrayim, the Haggadah tells us, don't think about Egypt. You can think about that particular story, but it's not actually about a historical event of leaving Egypt of which the Haggadah could care less. It's about what does it mean to leave these kinds of places, whether it's Mitzrayim, whether it's the house of Ravan, whether it is Sodom, whether it's Abraham in our chapter 12, leaving Egypt. And I would add to this, and most interesting of all in my view, is also can be within the land of Israel. In fact, it can even be inside the temple itself. You can be in the temple itself and be in Mitzrayim. And that's the story, of course, in the beginning of the book of Shmuel. Shmuel is resting, he said, Behechal Hashem, Hashem, Aron, Elohim. He is sleeping in the temple in which there is the Ark of God. Maybe even he's sleeping next to the Ark of God in the Holy of Holies, who knows? Behechal Hashem. And then we have the story of the burning bush right there. So it's not about geography. It's about, it's a conceptual understanding of what it means to be in, in dark spaces, in places of, of limitation, absence of freedom, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what the Haggadah points us in that direction. So that's what Rashi's getting at over here when Rashi said Pesach Haya. Rashi doesn't mean literally it's Pesach. Who cares if it's the 15th of Nisan or the 14th of Nisan? But the story, says Rashi, is similar to the story of Yitziat Mitzrayim. And I'll make one more comment and I'll stop and take comments or questions. And there's something else very interesting about the parallel. Over here, Lot takes these two people into his house, people, angels, whatever, thinks they're people. In any event, and the townspeople say, where are these people? Bring them out to us. Right? Sodomize them, that's the term. So the point is, it's not, it's not, it's not consensual over here. And Lot offers his daughters, right? And the response in verse number nine, but the people of the, of the town say, if they translate, stand back, stand there, stand away. They said, this guy comes to dwell amongst us. Lot is a gear. He's a stranger amongst us. He's not a full card carrying member. He came from the outside. And look at this. He intends to judge us. Remember that in the previous chapter, Avram had prayed to God for Mishpat. Mishpat. God, you're the creator of all. You're the judge of the whole world. Will you not do justice, right? And God said about Avram, I can't conceal from Avram what I plan to do, because I know he teaches everybody to do tzedakah or mishpat. And over here we have a town. Okay, let me go down and check it out. And what's we, what do we see about this town? A rejection of mishpat, an utter rejection of mishpat. This guy comes from the outside. He's going to judge us? Now, will be worse to, for you than to them. Lord had said, don't do evil, don't harm these people. And they're saying, evil, we're going to do plenty of evil, but not for that, against them. Against you who dares to judge us. And they pressed upon Lord very strongly. Just as Lord had brought in the strangers in verse number three. And 
They came to break, they're going to break down the door and get it locked. But the people, who were not just people, but God's messengers, they stretched out their hand, they brought Lot into the house, and they shut the door. Apparently the door had been left open. He didn't lock it behind him. It was open. They bring him into the house. They lock the door. And those who were standing by the door, by the, by the door, the opening to the house, they smote them with blindness. So it's a strange word, probably related to the word Iver, which is blind. From young to old, they were unable, helpless, to find the door, the entrance to the house. Now, this is a very interesting story. and may make one observation about the story over here. And when I say it, it's going to be obvious to everybody, but I'll say it anyway. And that is, what we have over here is precisely parallel to a central feature of the story of the Exodus. One might say the central feature of the story of the Exodus. Because we know that the people in Israel, God is going to take them out of Egypt. But we cannot leave Egypt in the story of the Exodus until we first, first bring the Paschal sacrifice, until we serve God together. And the Paschal sacrifice is the necessary prerequisite to leaving Mitzrayim. And the Paschal sacrifice is brought in the land of Egypt. It's not brought outside the land. It's not a three-day journey outside. Moshe had requested a journey outside. But the Paschal sacrifice is brought the Eretz Mitzrayim inside. So within the land of Egypt, there are, one might say, safe spaces. And the space in the land of Egypt is everybody's bayit. It. it is brought, says the Torah, by members of the house, beitavot. But it's brought for the house, and the Torah does not mean simply that it's brought by members of the house. It's actually brought on the house. The house itself becomes the altar. The blood is smeared on the doorposts, doorposts and on the lintel of the house. And not only that, we are commanded, and nobody is allowed to leave the house. So the house is set off one might say as a sacred space. The house becomes not just a safe, a safe place, not just a sanctuary, but the house becomes a kind of altar. What saves us in Mitzrayim as the, as the avenging or destroying angel is found in all of Egypt. What saves us is two things. First of all, the house, because the, I will not permit the Mashri to enter the house, but it's the blood, the, the destroying avenging angel will see the blood on the doorposts my understanding of that is not just see it's a Jewish house, it's got a mezuzah or something. But the sacrifice itself is, in, is, is instead of the person. The idea of sacrifice is the act of substitution. So I will smite those that don't have the sacrificial offering, they're going to be destroyed. But the firstborn, the house is in danger. But those that have brought the sacrifice on the house, that house becomes a safe space. So that's precisely parallel to what we have over here, actually parallel in spades, but I'll add something else. That's the focus over here. When you read the story, you have the petach. You have Lot saying to the people, they've come to under my beam. You have the delet. 
you have the opening of the door, you have the closing of the door. So what happens within Sodom, there's a space that's set off as separate from Sodom. Yes, Sodom will be destroyed. But this particular house is a safe haven. And to, to underscore the parallel to Mitzrayim, I would point out that in Mitzrayim, there are 10 plagues. There are three sets of three, and then there's the 10th plague in Makat B'cholom. In the last plague, actually, the last of the plagues of the sets of three, there's three, three, and three. The ninth plague is the plague of darkness, is Choshech. And the Torah says that for three days, no one could leave their house, right? But for all the Israelites, there was light. They had light. The distinction between light and dark, between darkness and light, is precisely the distinction, the land of Egypt, the Torah identifies with a dark place. And the idea of the light, the rays of light, that Israel has light, suggests the ultimate separation, the first time we see separation in the Bible, it's by the God of creation of chapter one of the Torah, the first distinction God makes, the first Havdalah is So the idea of Egypt as being a dark place, which is very interesting in its own right, and the idea of light being identified with separation from its rhyme, redemption. In fact, thinking about the burning bush, even though the Torah did not use the word or in terms of the snare, but it does focus on what Moshe sees over and over again, what he sees and what God sees. So the idea of light then as being separate from the darkness, the, 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 the points of light amidst the darkness. And that's what you have over here. So when Saddam, God will destroy Saddam, that may be parallel to the, to the 10th plague and to Yamsuf. But before you get to the tenth plague, you have the ninth plague, which in the land of Mitzrayim is Choshech. And over here it's Hikuba San Verim, Mikaton Riyad Godol, Vayimul, and so Hapetach. So the parallel to Sodom, uh, Itziah Mitzrayim, is very, very clear. I have not yet addressed the more important question, whereas given all this, what is the point? That's a very important question. What do we learn from this? What light, no pun intended, does it cast on our understanding of the two stories, and especially the story of Yitziat Mitzrayim, which I will get to in a few minutes. But prior to that, let me stop and take comments or questions at this point. Uh, we've had a hand up for a while yes. now. So, Sivan, would like to unmute? Go ahead. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, you, um, uh, Rabbi Silva, you were mentioning that uh, uh, Saddam was in many respects like Mitzrayim. And uh, I just wanted to ask you if it's fair to compare uh, uh, Mitzrayim with uh, Saddam. Uh, Mitzrayim was in several respects very kind, uh, except that uh, in the uh, last 200 years, uh, we see that uh, Egyptians were oppressed as slaves, but not to this degree of uh, cruelty. Uh, not to this degree of demonic cruelty. It was uh, kind to Joseph and uh, Joseph was treated almost like a king. And uh, uh, in the end, uh, Israelites were allowed to leave and uh, 
on many respects uh, this place sadan looks like a place from the underground uh, on the surface it's 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 not of the earth altogether how is it fair to compare okay let me i'll respond to that cup one let me say the following when i say the two are parallel in this particular text and there are many parallels obviously it doesn't mean that they're identical first of all they're not identical even in terms of the punishment because its life is not destroyed a pharaoh's armies may be destroyed sodom is utterly destroyed Sodom is, 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 is a ruin. So that's a very different. The God's response is different. Number two, I would say that you, the, the points you're making, uh, let's accept them, that actually they're not identical, and I, I accept that. And in point of fact, by the way, I would add to what you're saying, that the Chumash in the book of Devarim, when it talks about what countries you should not connect to and can't be part of your people, it talks about Ammon and Moab. Don't, don't accept the Ammonites and the Moabites, says the Torah, because they didn't greet you with bread and with, and, with, and, with, and with water when you left Egypt. But when it comes to Mitzrayim, the Torah says, Lo so. Do not utterly reject the Egyptian. You were a stranger in his, in, in, in his land. The Torah there says, as a third generation Mitzri, you are permitted to make part of your, part of your community. So obviously, the Torah distinguishes Mitzrayim from something like Sodom, and I never meant to suggest, farthest thing from my mind, that they're identical, and nor is the punishment identical. But I'm making a different point, that this particular text, because you're talking, what you're talking about is in general. And my point is that the in general is the function of many different texts. And the texts, which, by the way, connect to each other and in light of each other are also read differently. One text can be read in different ways because you read a text in, in light of what the text itself says, and then you may read it in light of what other texts say about it, which doesn't nullify the first reading. So you could have one text and several readings. So whereas what you're saying is correct, in my view, 100% correct, they're not identical, nor does the Chumash say they're identical. But this particular story over here, presents the two as parallel stories and similar in many, many respects. That's not to say there aren't some distinctions. And furthermore, when you have parallel texts, there always are some distinctions. And, other, and on top of that, we have other texts. I mentioned the one in Tvarim, which is black on white. Do not, do not utterly reject the Egyptians. You were a stranger in the land. You have chapter 23 of Tvarim. And there are other texts. And the, in, the, in, the, in the prophetic writings about Mitzrayim, there were texts which talk about Mitzrayim being, being rebuilt and being reborn on top of that. So Mitzrayim is much more complicated. But this particular text, the Mitzrayim of Reshit and Shemot, and the Paro, the Paro in these books is a bad guy. And what changes is not Paro. All the Paros are the same in Reshit and Shemot. Circumstance may change. When Paro needs you, Paro needs Joseph to figure out how we can assume complete control over Mitzrayim. He treats Joseph very nicely. And once he has control over Mitzrayim, Joseph has to beg the servants of power to get an audience. So it's, you know, and the next guy forgets him utterly. So overall, Mitzrayim is a bad place, without question. But you're right, it's not Sudan. Anybody else with a comment? Okay, now to speak up if you have, let me, let me continue then with our chapter. Okay, anyway, let me make another, another point about- Yeah, just, uh, just uh, to interject briefly. 
um, just the, the way we started, and I tried to, I tried to write it to you, um, it, made me, it made me wonder about whether what the Chumash is doing is it's giving a detail about the result of the, of the fall of human beings by eating from the tree of, from the, from the, from the tree of, of, of knowledge of good and evil. And that's the use of, of their saying, we want to know them. I mean, that's an interesting question in terms of, in general, the, the knowing over here, here and actually other texts as well, um, to what extent it goes back to that first larger question about what human beings know and don't know. That's a, a much, it's a bigger question. I will say that, first of all, having eaten of the tree of knowledge, the fruit of the tree of knowledge, um, for better or worse, that's a question, or maybe for better and worse, the human being is capable of knowing, which for the Chumash certainly means, since you're capable of knowing, you are held responsible for things that you do, and the answer is, I don't know, is not a valid response. So for example, when it comes to Cain, right? Uh, what God said to Cain, listen, what are you so upset about that I accepted the other sacrifice and that you are, if you do good, say, you'll either be forgiven or you'll rise to the top, you'll be chosen. But God doesn't spell out what it means to do good. God presumes that you know good from bad. So having known, having eaten of the tree of knowledge, you're a person that has free will, which is why you can never return to the Garden of Eden, because the Garden of Eden is not to replace that full knowledge. It's for people that have very limited knowledge. But once you have knowledge, you can never go back to God. That's why that's why Sodom becomes Kigan Hashem Kieretz Mitzrayim. Because what you do doesn't really matter so much if you're in Egypt. It's Kula Mashke. If you have the Nile River, there's always water. But in the land of Canaan, the Torah says, God seeks it out. Sometimes there's rain, sometimes there's not rain, which in the Chumash is a function of human behavior. So the point is that no, knowledge, not knowledge, that is, a, you raise a very big question. I have spoken about it in the context of Megillah Esther of chapter four, where the word knowledge in the chapter four, when Esther agrees to go to the king, which is the climactic chapter of the book, there the word knowledge is a guiding word in the entire chapter, and I've spoken about that, but I can't get into that now. But you raise an interesting question, it, and there's something to it, and it's a very central question, given the fact that the tree of knowledge is where our human history really begins with, with, with the eight Sada. Let me make a different point about these verses that I just read, namely chapter 19, verse number nine. The people of Sodom said, Look at it. This guy comes to dwell here as a gear. He's a stranger. He's a judge. We're going to harm you more than them. And what's interesting is it reminds me of a different possible. Exactly, exactly, exactly. When Moshe went out to see what's happening to his brethren, and he saw their struggles and their suffering, and he saw a Hebrew from his brethren smiting one of his brethren. See, two Jews fighting. The word meyachav appears three times there. It's brethren. And, and Moshe says, Russia, why would you hit your friend? It's your friend. You don't hit your friend. What is this? And, the other, and he said to him, 
Well, who made you the, who made, who, who made you a prince? Who made you a judge? You would kill me the way you killed the Egyptian? So apparently Moshe had killed the Egyptian the previous day. So they know about it and they're talking about it. And surely the matter is known. And the next verse, Parol hears about it, either directly or indirectly from them. The Medrash, Midrash, of course, had a, perhaps a bit cynical, asked the question that the, in the previous day, Moshe said, turn this way and that way, and he saw nobody. And he killed the Egyptian who was beating the Jew. So the Medrash asked the question, so what do you mean? So how, so how, so how, so how did they know? When Moshe had done, when it says he looked this way and that way, and he saw nobody, there was no ish. You can answer many different ways, but the Medrash says, well, there's one guy who did know. He was the guy that the Egyptian was beating. So no good deed goes unpunished. So the Medrash has the guy who was being beaten up informing on Moshe. But leaving that aside, you have the same verse. That the point of the, those are the Jews talking. But the Jews are talking the language of Sodom, which is the language of Mitzrayim. So that's another interesting connection between the two. It's not just about Sodom. This is a very important point. Let me just digress for one moment about this last point, and actually about Medrash and about the Haggadah and about the Seder and about life too, which is all the same thing, which is, you know, we think of the world as the good guys and the bad guys. Power's a bad guy. Power's the bad guy, you know? The Jewish people, they're the good guys. But when you look at the Midrash, what the Midrash often points out is that two things. First of all, it's plain to learn from the bad guys. And number two, the bad guys aren't only out there. So that, for example, the Midrash and that we have in the Haggadah, which cites the verse, B'yad Chazak of Israel and Atuya, and they point us to the story of King David taking a census takes the census in the book of Chronicles without getting to the details now, but David taking the census, which in effect is saying, these are my people. They're my people, not God's people. I'm gonna count them, they're my people. That's exactly a Pharaoh-like maneuver. What do you mean you, what do you, mean you wanna go serve your God? You wanna be, be Avdei Hashem, Shalach Ami Avduni. Paul says, that, but they're, my, they're working for me. They can't work for two, two masters. Tichbada Avodah, they worked for me. That mentality of the people in control saying the other people are there to serve me, that's not limited to Pharaoh. That could be anybody, including King David. And that's the point of the Midrash, and that's something to learn from the story here, which is the language, Misam Sarvish is not just the language of Sodom, which is Mitzrayim, it's also our language. We can adopt exactly the same language. So that's another very important point. And that's why Moshe is not so anxious to go back there. And that's just because they're the cause of his having to run away. Because he says to himself, presumably, why should I bother saving them? I'm happy where I am. I have Midian. I have the priest of Midian. He seems like a wonderful human being. We believe in the same things. We believe in justice and caring for the, the oppressed and helping people out. We believe in Mishpat. We believe in saving people. I'm happy here. Why would I go back to Mitzrayim? To which God says to Moshe, you got to save your brethren. Those are your brothers. Your brothers and your sisters. That's your task. And that's your mission in life. You don't have to like them, but you have to save them. And that's what Moshe does. He struggles, he struggles, but he actually, at the end of the day, does it. 
but part of his, his reluctance to do it, no doubt, is his experience with the Jews in Egypt. That's Saddam talking, which we have adopted their language. That's another parallel between the stories. Okay, let us continue now. Uh, we're not going to finish this chapter this week, obviously, but uh, let's go on. Fine. So the people say to Lot. And here we come to a very, very interesting, interesting point about chapter 19. I'll tell you a little story about it. Who else do you have in Sodom? Say, do you have a chatan, son-in-law? Sons and daughters. It sounds from this verse that Lot has sons. We've never heard of his sons, but it sounds like he actually has means your sons. So it sounds like he has son-in-law, sons, daughters. We know he has at least two daughters. If he has sons-in-law, he presumably has more daughters. All that you possess, we'll take out of this place. We are destroying the city. They came to check it out. It just got checked out in spades. God has sent us to destroy it. Every word is wonderful here. Lord went out. He spoke to his sons-in-law, those that took his daughters. is superfluous. It says sons-in-law, they're obviously married to his daughters. But here, carries with it a negative. It's negative in the context. The Torah speaks in the book of Devarim, if a man take a woman. Is not necessarily a pejorative term in that context. But over here, is pejorative in my view, given the context of the story. The people of Sodom are people, and Lot offers them his daughters. They want to take the strangers, they want to take Lot, and they want to take the daughters. They prefer the men to the women, they prefer the stranger to the women, I would say, is really the main point here. But in any event, so Chatanav Gokhebenotav suggests that they are Sodom like the sons in law. And when Lot says to them, get up and leave the city. For God is destroying the city. It seemed to them as somebody who's mocking or jesting. So they discount what he says altogether. Why would God do this? What do you have your mind or something? So they totally discount. When he says they spoke to his sons-in-law, that means he has more than one son-in-law. Chatanav is plural. So let's say he has at least two sons-in-law. If he has two sons-in-law, by the way, and he has sons, that's at least two, and he has two unmarried daughters, and there's Lot and his wife, if you add up the numbers, my friends, you get to the number 10. There's Lot and his wife is two, the two unmarried daughters is four, the two sons is six, and the two married daughters and two sons-in-law is 10. So actually it turns out that Avram, when Avram prayed for 10, actually, he stopped at 10. If Lot and the family were virtuous people, you would get your 10. You would have the 10 people over here. When it comes to this minion, everybody counts the women for the minion. So there are 10, there are 10 righteous people in the town. 
that would have saved the town. But apparently, there is nobody. The sons of the law have no interest. So when Lot is going to leave, he will leave only with himself, the two unmarried daughters, and the wife. Now we'll see what happens over here. As the sun was rising, as the dawn was coming, they hurried him, they rushed him. The, the angels rushing low, saying, Hurry up, take your wife and take the two daughters that are nimsaot that are found with you, because the others you can't get to. The sons-in-law, those that family, forget about. They mocked him. They think he's, he's joking. So just get out as fast as you can. The city is soon will be destroyed, and you will die together with the city. What Abram had said to God, will you destroy the virtue, the righteous with the wicked? Haftispeh, right? Sadiqim Rasha. And the angels say to him, you will die with the, with the other people if you don't move now. And maybe because... You're not so virtuous either, as we've seen. You are, on one hand, an Abraham-like figure through the hospitality, but the offering of the daughters to the mob is Sodom-like. So you're sort of betwixt and between. You can be saved, but you've got to move now, because if you don't leave, you will be destroyed. And his response in verse number 16, Vayit Mama, but Lot tarried, he delayed, Vayit Mama. So the angels grabbed onto his hand and his wife's hand and his two daughters. God's mercy, because, right? Because of the words mercy on him. So they saved him and his family that's with him. And they took him out and they placed him outside the city. Here there's a very interesting point. And that's verse number 16, by Yit Mahamah. He tarried or he delayed. Right? Verse number 16, by Yit Mahamah. You see Is that it Shalshelet, Rabbi Sivra? It's a Shalshelet on it, which perhaps suggests also hesitation. The Shalshelet suggests hesitation. But there's something else about the word by Yit Mahamah. Yit Mahamah appears in the Torah three times. It appears here. He appears later in the story of Yehuda speaking to his father in chapter 43. We can't get into that now. And it appears the third time in the Torah. The Torah says that when we left the land of Egypt, we left the land of Egypt, says the Torah, we ate matzot, we ate matzah, we didn't eat chametz, we didn't eat leavened bread, we ate unleavened bread. Why? Ki garshumi mitzrayim. We were chased out of Egypt. We could not tarry. We had, we had, we had no provision provided for us. There you have the word, and the Torah says we were kicked out, we were chased out of Egypt. The Egyptian people chased us out of Egypt, so we could not tarry. We were thrown out. And um, let's see if we can find that verse. That's a verse in, let me see if I can find the verse. Um, because the verse is interesting for another reason. Let's see if I can't. Yes, there are two verses. This is chapter 12 of Shemot. 
ויופיעו את הבצק אשר הוציאו ממצרים עוגות מעצות קירות חמץ, פרסטן בתרטינאיים, כי גרשו ממצרים ולא יאכלו התמהמה. We could not tarry, we were chased out, and we had not prevented any provision for ourselves. They baked on eleven cakes, matzo, ugot matzo. Earlier, that's verse number 39. And now you have chapter 12 of Shemot, verse number 13, which describes how the Jews leave, depart from Egypt. The Egyptians, v'techezak. Here the translation is urged, but it's more than urging. Chazak is strong. They overpowered them, one might say. They overpowered the people. To throw them out. For they said, we're all going to die. Is the plague of the firstborn. So what do we have? Why did we leave the land of Egypt? What does the Torah say in chapter 12 of Shemot, verse 33 and verse 39? Torah makes a very simple point. Yes, we did leave the land of Egypt. But the question the Torah asks is, if the Egyptian hadn't thrown us out, the Egyptian people, not Pharaoh, but the Egyptian people throw us out, we could not tarry. But if we could have tarried, would we have left or not? It's an open question. Of course, it plays off precisely the verse in our chapter. But they grabbed onto his hand. But had we been able to tarry? Who knows? Point of fact, what, what is the point? And here we come to the deeper point about the question we ask or should be asking is what is you can ask me, what are you trying to say? What is the point of all this cleverness? Point is very simple. The Chumash is interested, it goes back to a comment that was made earlier. The Chumash is interested in so many different ways to describe the, the Israelite people that leave Mitzrayim. Who are they? We know we are saved. The Chumash says it explicitly, God remembered the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the end of chapter two. But what about this people that leave Mitzrayim? If we had to categorize them, how would we categorize the Israelites in the land of Egypt? And when you read chapter 19, there's one perspective in chapter 19. The people in the land of Egypt, if you want to understand them, who are they similar to? It's one little word, Lot. We are Lot. We are Lot in as much as we don't have the merit to be saved on our own. We're, no, we're not... We're not fully righteous people. We're not wicked people either. Not at all. We have some faith to some extent. And the fact of the matter is that the people that leave Egypt didn't just walk out of Egypt. Like Lot, we had difficulty leaving Egypt. Why do we have difficulty leaving Egypt? Because there's a piece of us that is Egypt. There's a piece of us that says, me there's a piece of us that night and throughout the 40 years that says, let's go back to Mitzrayim. There's a piece of us that says, we'd rather have the security of slavery than the insecurity of freedom. There's a piece of us that says, remember the, the onions and the cucumbers and the watermelons that we got for nothing, chinam. In Rashi comments, chinam in our mitzvah. There was no obligations. 
they're forgetting about the, the abuse and the slavery and all that stuff. There's a piece of us that says, and the point is you can read this into the very Exodus itself. It's exactly Lot. And here we come to another significant parallel to Lot, which is that in the case of Lot, we have here in chapter 19, um, chapter 19, so when Lot, they place Lot outside the city and they say to Lot, in verse number 17, verse 17. <coughs> they put him outside the city. They put them outside the city and they say to Lot, flee for your life. Right? And they're explicit where he should go. Run to the mountain. Run to the mountain. Playing on the name Lot. They say to Lot, Right? <coughs> and Lot's answer is, I can't. I can't. I'm grateful for what you did. Anochi in verse number 19, I can't go to the mountain. Pented Bokani Hara Vamati, lest death cleave to me and I die. I can't go there. Let me go to a different place which is nearby. a small city nearby. Let me go there. He goes to the small town. The small town is Soar. Soar is mentioned in chapter 14, is one of the five, five cities. So Ahara Himalayat means leave the five cities and rush to the mountain. It means presumably go back to Abraham. And I say this for a good reason. Because of the language of verse number 17, that's a loaded phrase. We encountered it in chapter 15. When Abraham said to God, I I have no one to, to take over from me when I die. I have no succession. And he took Abraham outside and said, Count this. Can you number the stars? So you will have a success. You will have a covenantal successor. And there's the promise of the land, which is chapter 15, succession and land. And that's. So Lod is being brought. And as the Chumash does in other places, he's given an opportunity to, to, uh, to go back, to, to return. It's not too late to return. You're not really part of Saddam. The problem is he is part of Saddam. The problem is he's caught betwixt and between. He can leave Saddam. He can be dragged out of Saddam. Okay, he tarried the way, but he can't make the next step to go to take the next step to return to the land the covenantal land. And that, my friends, is exactly the story of the Torah. The people that leave Mitzrayim, we get out of Mitzrayim. We're chased out, we're kicked out, we want to go out. We could not tarry, we might have tarried. But the next step that God said to Moshe at the burning bush, I will go down into Mitzrayim and I will bring them to that land, to a good and broad land, Eretz Tovar, Eretz Zavat Cholavagash, Haklani, Amori, etc. That land we never get to. 
that next step we cannot take to go to the mountain. Remember when Moshe prayed to go into the land? Let me go into the land, says Moshe. To the good mountain. God says, I'm sorry. You did what I want you to do. You can't enter. You can't go to the good mountain. Good mountain is the land of Canaan. So the point is, here Lord is being offered the opportunity and can't do it. I can't do it. I can go nearby. I can get to the border, but I can't cross over into it. And that is precisely the story of the Israelites, of the Jewish people, of the generation that leaves Mitzrayim. So, the, so the, the literary function, my, the answer to my question, what is the literary function of Lod over here? Um, the literary function of Lod is twofold. Is the literary function of Lod within the immediate context of Abraham. He casts a light on Abraham and maybe we'll pick up with more of that next time. But he also becomes a central character in terms of the story of the Exodus. That's what the Medrash means, Pesach gave the matzah. The matzos are eaten at night, actually. But Erev Tochu Matzot is very, very parallel. Matzah you eat at night, not in the day. But Erev Tochu Matzot, but it's not just the matzah, obviously. The matzah, Rashi's two-word commentary, is the segue to understanding the depth of the parallels and the comparison between the character of Lot and the story of the Exodus and the Israelites who leave Egypt. And I want just to repeat what I said earlier in response to a comment this is one perspective, but the way the Bible works, it works with multiple perspectives. If you're talking about the truth with a capital T, it's probably a function of gathering all the perspectives, if that's possible. And from all the different perspectives, you get a fuller picture. But this particular perspective of an, a people in Egypt unworthy of redemption on their own. But yes, they do connect to Avram in a certain way, and God remembers the covenant and we have fulfilled the terms of the covenant and God will redeem us. And we might have tarried, might not have tarried. We retain those connections to Mitzrayim even after we leave and there's a struggle and we do get out, but we can't take those next steps. That is quite parallel to the story of Lot. So let me say, let me stop you and take some comments. We have not exhausted this chapter. There's another whole perspective on chapter 19, which is very interesting. Um, yeah, I would put in a plug for my Haggadah, by the way, if you haven't, don't have it, most, many people have it, but the Haggadah, I talk about this. I mean, we, we do more in the classes than just what's written, but there's a chapter on Lot, which is interesting, but next week we'll pick up on this chapter again, because there's another perspective on this chapter, which is, I mean, what you see over here, apart from everything else, is the, the, uh, the artistry of the Torah, I mean, is almost uh, limitless, really. And when you read it, it's after you hear this, it's, I think it's obvious. But the point is, but to see it, that's not obvious. And there's another entire perspective on chapter 19, which is very interesting. Hope we can complete that next week. If there are comments or questions, please, either in the chat, anybody wants to speak up now? And uh, we'll continue next week with chapter 19. It's the Yanni out of order, obviously references Noah. So we will get to know it next week. That's the, that's the other perspective on the story. That is exactly, we'll get to know it. And it's very deep, actually. The parallels are very, and very important. We'll get to know it next time. Yeah. Uh, 
like Hagar, it's you mentioned before, Lot is given a chance to join the covenant and chooses not. It's exactly parallel to what I said about Hagar. It's exactly right. There's an opportunity given. In each case, that's probably what the Torah is after. It's not that he's simply rejected. He's given an opportunity. He chooses not to do it. And that what disqualifies him at the end of the day is his choice. He made a choice not to not to go back to the mountain. By the way, just in just to comment, there's less less death overtake me. Right? That's what he says. Pentid Bokani Haravamati. Tid Bokani Haravamati. That that phrase reminds us of a different puzzle, a different story. Not about Lot, but about Lot's descendants. He has a heroic descendant, says Lot. Her name is Ruth. And Naomi says to Ruth, don't come back with me. Don't come back with me. It says, Arpa goes back. But Ruth cleaved unto her. And she says, listen, why do you stay with me? Why do you cleave to me? Go back like you said, like this other daughter-in-law. No, no. Where you go, I will go. And when you die, I will die. And of course, the book of Ruth is responding directly to what it says over here. I can't cleave though, right? Let's death cleave unto me. I can't make that leap. And what Ruth says is exactly the opposite. I cleave unto you. Yes. And maybe there's no future for me for being a Moabite woman. It doesn't matter to me. When you die, I will die. So the, in order to, to, the justification of Ruth and the acceptance of Ruth is, of course, the, the Talmud has a different issue, more by women, more by men, but the Book of Ruth knows nothing of that at all. The Book of Ruth has a different justification. What do you mean she's a Moabite? She, she's Abraham's daughter. We don't care what she is. She's Abraham's daughter. How can you not accept Ruth? She's Abram in spades. That's the justification. Because the point is, if Lot is Abraham's foil, then the foil of Lot becomes Abraham. That, that's the point of it. Anyway, what else? If you have a... When do you want to say something? Speak up, please. I can't, you mute it. I see a, a, the thread of unleavened bread that Lot, when faced with suddenly strangers in his house, he has to feed, does the fast thing. He doesn't have the time to, to let the, the bread rise, to go out and get a calf, kill it, and so forth. Because in the town of Sodom, you don't get that kind of time if strangers come in your house. So he gives them unleavened bread. And then we get into these issues of when he has to leave the town, he can't summon the strength that he had to produce the bread for the men in order to get himself out. In but I will... I will, I will talk next week about the matzah. We'll come back to the matzah next week. Uh, it's a very important point about the matzah. Obviously, it's very important, very central. And of course, the matzah is central, obviously, in the story of Pesach, right? So the, we, we will talk about, we'll get back to the matzah next week. We haven't, there's plenty more in this chapter. We'll take us a whole, whole session. And it's actually very relevant since Pesach's coming up soon. Uh, it's, uh, you know, so it's also preparation for Pesach. If anybody has a unlike, question, yeah, yeah. Un, 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 unlike the Pesach story, uh, I mean, if, unlike the Pesach story is Lot's story because in the Pesach story, God has already learned that you don't take them out 
unless they're willing to make the gesture of making the Korban Pesach first. Right. So the point is that in the story over here, actually, and that's an important distinction, we'll talk about this next week. The story over here, the, 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 the house as being a, a saving place, it's not that load generates that. It's that the outside is the angels, by say God's representatives, generate the place. Whereas in the carbon Pesach, we are commanded to take the sacrifice. We are commanded to take it beforehand, to prepare it, et cetera, et cetera. That is, we are commanded to put the blood on the doorpost. So there's the, the initiative of the people, which is a prerequisite to leaving that you don't have in the story of Lot. And that's a, that is an important distinction between the two. We'll have to continue next week with this. We have tons of classes happening this week. So we'd be happy to see you. If you need to catch up on this class, you can find the recordings at drisha.org slash live.